Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Watermark OC Church Sunday Message. Watermark is a generational community that is crazy passionate about starting a conversation about God, your relationships, and authentic love. If you're interested in getting more information, please click the link in the show notes for next steps. Thanks again for listening. It's our hope and prayer that this message would transform your life. Welcome, you guys. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, so excited to be starting this new series with you called I Can Relate. Uh, follow-up subtitle not written down anywhere would be in parentheses, but can you? Really? Can we? How are we doing in our relationships? This series is about helping us grow into emotionally, spiritually healthy adults in our relationships. In this series, we will try to address the seeming contradiction. This, track with me on this. This is just the introduction. All right? The seeming contradiction of a Christian that loves Jesus and so passionate about Scripture and yet acts like a child relationally. <laughs> There's a disconnect there that we're going to kind of unpack and dissect through the series. In short, the series is about loving God and loving others. Remember, Jesus said that's the greatest command. That's the filter for the whole Bible at the time of Jesus. The law and the prophets hang on this one thing, that you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself, right? You guys remember that one? It's just a subtle nodding of the head. And you guys who are at home, I'm looking at you right now, just the nodding of the head will confirm you know what the greatest command of all time is. And that's what it is. But we have this disconnect. So we're going to connect the dots between loving God and loving others over the next eight weeks. We'll give you some practical tools, all driven by Scripture. Um, that show this and help us with this. It's also, this series is partly influenced uh, by uh, a book called Emotionally Healthy Relationships by Pete Scazzaro. I recommend anything by the guy. Uh, he's got a podcast. He's got different, you know, devotionals and books. This one is a workbook. I just can't recommend him enough. He's had a profound effect on my life, personally. Just a profound effect on my life, my habits, and my, my own faith. And there's this little questionnaire in the beginning of the workbook, Emotionally Healthy Relationships. And if you guys want to do a little bit more lights, I don't know if you can, but um, someone might need that for notes or uh, if that is helpful for you guys out there. There's this questionnaire. It's a, it's a diagnostic tool meant to help you find the areas in your life, in your relationships, where you're, where you're maybe an infant, a child, an adolescent, or an adult. Where are you at in your relationships and in your own heart, kind of marked by a bi- biological age, okay? And I'm going to give you a sampling of how I ranked myself, give you an idea of kind of what we're talking about and where we're going in the series. Okay, so question number one. It is easy for me to identify what I'm feeling inside on a scale of one to four. Okay, scale of one to four, all these questions were, I put a two. (laughs) So just kind of mid-range, a two, not so much sometimes. You men in the room, admit it right now. How easy is it for you at the end of a long day? Just pour your heart out to your wife. She just wants to know what you're feeling and what you're thinking and what you went through. And she wants to hear a little bit of nuance about the day. You just pour it out, right? Well, you're a four. Congratulations. You're totally tapped in with, that, with what's happening in your heart. Congratulations. Your boy's a two. Okay, that's just trying to be honest. Second question. I am, I am willing to explore previously unknown and unacceptable parts of myself, allowing Christ to transform me more fully, by the way. I can do this deep mining work into my past memories, my life experiences, my family of origin. Again, I put a two. I can readily share about my emotions, too. I am able to experience and deal with anger in a way that leads to growth in others and myself. One. Yeah. Some of my boys over here know what I'm talking about for me because they know my heart and they're helping me guard my own soul. That's a one. That's me, honestly. Kind of just middle range on a lot of this, and I have some growing to do. I judge others. I take offense easily sometimes. I still have emotional tantrums. I got toddlers, but... Like, we both know how to throw down in a tantrum sometimes. What about you? What about you? Can we do that? Can we just, 
if we're going to make some headway in this series over the next eight weeks, huge investment of time, yours and mine, can we do that? Can we just admit to look inside our own hearts and do some introspection? Really hard to do for some of us. Do you, do you readily and easily search your soul regarding your feelings and your emotions and then consistently bring those to God? How are you doing on that? Do you process your anger with God in a healthy way or do you just bottle it up and then unleash it on someone or something that's not even remotely tied to the target of your feelings? You know, did you track with me what I said? You bottle it up and then unleash it on some poor fool at the grocery store or the coffee shop or whatever. They have nothing to do with the person you're actually angry at, but they just got some of the wrath, right? How are you doing in that? I mean, how well do you know yourself, honestly? And for those who are just maybe wondering, uh, emotions, uh, is this like psychobabble, you know, psychology, science stuff? What is this? Well, let's look at scripture. This is Psalm 139. I took it upon myself one time in high school to memorize one verse. This was that verse. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Wow. Search my heart. Test me. Know me. Jeremiah 20, 14, the next slide. The depressed prophet. Yeah, he was known as that, by the way. I don't know if you guys knew that about Jeremiah. Read the whole book. It's brutal. Things he went through, things he experienced, and the way he was able to still do ministry and speak from that place. Check this out. This is brutal. Have you ever felt this? Have you ever thought this? Do you know someone who's felt this? This is in the Bible. Cursed be the day I was born. May that day not be blessed when my mother gave birth to me. Cursed be the man who made my father glad when he brought him the news that a baby boy had been born to him. Wow. That's what I call brutal honesty. That's what I call pain. That's what I call shame. Some deep-seated feelings. Psalm 73, 26. My flesh and my heart may grow weak. We'll end on an encouraging note. But God always protects my heart and gives me stability. Man, it's a ragged and tumultuous ocean in there sometimes. You know, guys, what's going on underneath the iceberg? There's a graphic. Most of you probably only saw it if you're on social media for this series, and it's an iceberg. You guys have heard the metaphor before. <clears throat> you get the picture. That the iceberg is only whatever you see on top of the water is only 10% of the structure. The majority of it, let's say 90%, is under the surface. What's going on underneath the surface, you guys? And not just how does that affect me, but how is that affecting our relationships? Are we consciously aware of the 90% of what's going on underneath the surface and how we're sometimes like bubbling over and unleashing that on other people and our key relationships, our friends, our family? People we're dating, people we're married to. The folks in the book, book of Corinthians, that's where we're going to go, by the way, for the lion's share of the whole rest of the morning is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go there and look at the whole, the whole chapter 1. We're going to get through some big chunks here. And we're going to be in the NET translation. I really messed that up. I think it was Good Friday and used multiple translations, and I just feel I didn't do anyone any favors. But we're going to be in the NET. If you have a digital version, you can click on that on your Bible app. You guys who are at home, grab your Bibles. You guys uh, who are at home, welcome. Glad that you're here. And you guys who are in person, we're going to do baptisms at the end of the service today. And we don't have anyone, all the people who we know we're getting baptized are coming in the second service. And so if something happens today and, and you just hear the message, we're going to be talking about the cross. And baptism is, is a lot about the cross. Death to an old life and then new life, resurrection life as we come out of the water. And if something is just sinking down deep into your heart today about baptism, you want to get baptized, we'll, we, we have the tub ready here. We have towels. We even have a change of clothes to get in the water with. And start thinking about that right now. If maybe God is calling you to get baptized today, we're going to give you an opportunity at the end of service just in the moment to go for it. So I want to plant that seed really quick. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we have a group of people that face similar struggles. Did they know what was going on underneath the iceberg? Did they know how it was affecting those around them? Not so much. And they quarreled and they fought. They failed to link loving God with loving others. 
We're going to begin in verse 10. This is what it says. This is Paul writing to a new church, new believers in the city of Corinth. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to agree together to end your divisions and to be united by the same mind and purpose. For members of Chloe's household have made it clear to me, my brothers and sisters, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this. That each of you is saying, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. Here's a hard-hitting question. Is Christ divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Or were you, in fact, baptized in the name of Paul? Verse 10 has this, this little tucked-in meaning of unity. Agree together, the, the original language, be in and of the same mind and purpose, he says. He's talking about believers. This whole thing, by the way, today is just the context of believers with believers. We're not even ready to touch the whole concept of those who are unbelievers and maybe you have quarrels with. We, we, guys, we still have to have an intramural debate about this, all right? The context of this is Christians to Christians, y'all. What we just read is Christians with Christians. How to get along. I think you can interpret the stress in my voice when I say that. We're not even talking about our enemies who are maybe non-believers today. Some of it might impact, but we're just talking about believers, our same squad, same team. How do we relate to one another? We have a significant challenge. Paul says, be of the same mind and purpose. A really interesting rhetorical question there is, how can we be of the same mind and purpose when we don't know our own mind and our own purpose? Do you know what I'm talking about in terms of emotionally? Like we just read in that whole introduction, the iceberg, what's underneath the surface. We don't even, we're unconscious of what we feel. Just put it so plainly, we don't even know what we're feeling. My wife could ask me in the morning, I won't know until bedtime what I was feeling. She'll ask a direct question and I won't know. It'll take me the whole day to be honest with that, to search my heart and my soul, to bring those feelings to God and find out what it was. Just this last week, we had this debate. What was it about? Oh my gosh, it was about the volume of my voice. That's what it was. That's, that's what it was, yeah. It was about the volume of my voice in the house. And we had the most delicate and sweet Friday morning. I take Fridays and Saturdays off and I work the other five days. And we had this sweet morning and it's quiet. The kids are chill. Like, believe it or not, we, the two of us could just sit down. Yes, even with nine babies. I think two of them were asleep, taking a nap. And we just like sat down on the couch. And, um, and then my wife got on the phone with my sister, one of her closest friends. And then, one, and then we were in this bedroom where there's a window facing to the backyard. And one of the kids is being a knucklehead. So what did I do? Hey, get off that thing. And she's like, I'm on the phone. Like, I'm on the phone. And you're yelling right by my head. And I was like, oh, you know, my bad, my bad, my bad, my bad, cool. And then later that morning, she's like, what, what's going on? Like, well, I sent something in your tone. Like, it wasn't just giving directions. What, are you frustrated? Are you angry? The volume is too much. And, and, and it came up later that evening, you know, because we weren't ready to talk about it then. And I was just like, I just took off. We, we had a moment after dinner where I had a moment, and I just, I had to brood. I had to just sweep. I went to the garage. I swept. I swept the, the dining room from dinner. I got the vacuum out. I had the shop vac out, and I'm going like square inch for square inch on the rug in the garage, just like brooding and brooding. I had to sense and search and do this deep, deep digging. What is going on? Why is it so hard for you, Ben, to confess? Yeah, you need to grow in terms of the volume of your voice. Literally, you know what step one was? I don't know if this is relatable. This is why I'm taking so much time on this illustration that was not in my notes. The first thing I heard, the voice in my head was, you're not going to get any quieter. That was me to my wife. I'm not going to get any quieter. I'm not going to change. So, because you have to speak a certain volume to get a hold of these kids' ears. I'm not going to change. It's not going to be me that changes. I, you know how many times I said that, like neurotically said that over to myself again and again. And go, I'm not going to change. 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 Maybe I could change a little bit. Maybe I could get, I could probably get a little bit quieter. I could, there's probably still some room I have to grow eventually. But it took an hour 
of sweeping and obsessive compulsive vacuuming to figure out, oh, wait, maybe there's some sense to be had in this conversation, right? We've got to search our own hearts, to know our own hearts before we can be of the same mind and the same purpose. Well, someone, did you see what, such a, what a tall order that is? When Christ says, uh, agree together, keyword together, Paul, when Paul says that, we can't even agree inside ourselves, right? So it's an important first step. You get that. Is Christ divided? Verse 13, is Christ divided? No. He's one. So what's the real conflict here, though? Let's get into the interpersonal. It's not just the you. It's how you relate to the other, right? <clears throat> verse 12 holds the answer. They're having a, a, a debate here. They're having a turf war. Each one of you is saying, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Cephas, that is Peter, I'm with Christ. Uh, they're, they're, they're really having a turf war about identity and about validation. They're competing spiritually. You know, they're doing the country club thing versus the broken body thing. You know what I'm saying about what a church is and can be and ought to be? That a church, Jesus said, is for, is for those who are sick. That why Jesus came, why Jesus came was for those who are sick. Healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. That's what a church is, you guys. A church is not a country club where you're in by affiliation. You're in because you pay your dues. No, it's not. It's not in because of your identity or because of your status or because of your claim. It's not, that's not what we're in for. We're in on account of our common brokenness and our need of a savior. And they're getting into that debate and they're getting into that fight and they're getting into comparison. Is comparison the thief of joy? Just say yes. Is comparison the thief of joy? Just go ahead and say yes. Yeah. Well, I know more Bible verses than you. That's what they're doing. They're just children. They're, they're emotional adolescents or emotional infants when it comes to their emotional spirituality. At the core is one of the most common and oldest identity wounds of all time. We've been obsessed with this. I'm with Paul. I'm with Cephas. I'm with Apollos. Who, who, are you with? Well, who are you with? Think about it today, you know, all the popular websites and organizations put together for this 23andMe. Isn't that the one genetic thing you can do to find your ancestors? Ancestry.com. Why do we do this? Why do we have this endless, you know, incessant pursuit of where do I come from? We want to know, like, maybe there's a Prince, you know, uh, George somewhere in there. Or, you know, some, some royal lineage, some fame in there, some identity we can level up in. Instead of paying attention to how God is coming to us and find our identity in him. We're wasting time propping ourselves up and putting others down. That's what comparison is. We don't have to do that if you have your identity firmly rooted in Christ. You don't have to do that. We don't have to do comparison anymore. What's the cost? There's a cost with this comparison, this competition. It's still happening today, by the way, this whole comparison. And who am I with? I'm with Calvary. I'm with the Charismatics. I'm with this Bible study. I'm with this preacher. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. What's the cost of this infighting and this identity politics? It says here in 1 Corinthians verse 17. Let's read on. Go to verse 17. But Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with clever speech, so the cross of Christ would become useless. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Fast forward to verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. Can I just say this? This is actually point number one. All that was extra. That was all introduction. You're welcome. Congratulations, note takers. Just put, go back up in your notes. I know I hate when the other preachers do this. Go back up there and just put intro and then underline it for everything I've said so far in your notes. This is point number one. The cross will fix your relationships. Go ahead. Number one, the cross has the power to fix your relationships. It will. The cross, listen to what Paul says about when we get stuck in infighting. And we're going to go back for a second, guys, if I can have that previous slide. Verse 17. The, the, the cross of Christ would become useless. Do you know what the literal translation of that is, what he's trying to say? The cross becomes emptied of its power. 
Oh, that is so brutal. I should just send, just send us back. Just kind of shook, you know, just like falling backwards. Oh, when we have our endless infighting and our intramural debates and we agree to disagree so often that we have some thousands of denominations today because we couldn't get together with the love God, love others part in our own squad, not unbelievers, in our own team. We couldn't do that part. And so we have more denominations than we, uh, that are unlike than, than are like, right? Because this endless age-old debate in the cross is meanwhile there emptied of its power. How come the unbeliever can't get it? The unbeliever can't understand the cross? Because we have emptied of its power whenever we say, oh, I'm good with Jesus and I'm good with my Bible time, but I can still treat this person like they're less than a human being, like they're less than a child of God. The cross is emptied of its power, Paul says. And yet the whole message, the whole message, Paul says, is the cross. What's the good news? What's our, what's our message? We preach Christ crucified. Verse 23. I love, I wanted to look up, what does he really mean by preach? So I went to BibleHub.com. Y'all know already, you got it saved in your keychain. You got the favorites highlighted and bookmarked in your Safari browser. Preach. Okay, Russo. We gospelize. We gospelize. It's kind of a made-up word maybe, but that's what it means to preach. We gospelize the nations, every tribe, nation, and tongue, starting with our own tribe, by the way. We gospelize, share the good news of the cross. When you find yourself in a conflict, you guys, bottom line, when you find yourself in a relational conflict, you find yourself hurt by someone, you find yourself judging someone else, speaking harshly, tearing someone else down, what I read in Paul is that we take our eyes off of them and fix our eyes on the cross. There's a tool. There's a method right there. And I'll give you a specific tool, actually, even more so. This is why I recommend the Jesus prayer. Something I've talked about before. It's been a great tool for me when I find myself in comparison, judgment, competition. And this is the Jesus prayer. It simply is this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I get stuck, and I'm thinking about someone else, and I'm demonizing them, and I'm making them the enemy, and I'm judging and critiquing them. I just, I eventually, by the grace of God, I, I just, just launch into this prayer. And this prayer, where does it come from? It is, a, it is a conglomeration of verses. There's a bunch of verses you could pack in that one line. But the, but the early church fathers, yes, even the Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and then Eastern Orthodox church fathers would pray this, sometimes all day long. I was just reminded of this. I've seen it in movies and pictures and stuff. But you know why they have those prayer beads, right? Why, they have that? why do they have it? And why are they doing this with it in their hand, as you guys can see? What are they doing? They're rotating bead for bead, saying that prayer over and over and over again. Is there something mystic and powerful in the beads? No, 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 no. But there's something powerful in the spoken word. There's something that can happen to our heart. We can be transformed by, by prayer. Things move by result of prayer. And so these guys would all day be locked in. And I can imagine that. Can you imagine that? How sometimes it might take all day to get off that fixation, that obsession relationally, that you've just been destroying you and wreaking havoc on the rest of your life. Now other people are paying the price for your conflict with someone else because it's just taking you over. And so I'll sit there and I'll just pray. And I'll give you the scriptural background on that prayer. Son of God. When Jesus goes to Peter and says, are you going to follow me? And Peter says, you, we found the son of God, the one true son of God. Who else could we follow? How about the, the tax collector? Remember when the tax collector and the religious elitist, the Pharisee, go up to the altar and they pray. And Jesus gives a picture of the right way to pray. And what does the sinner say? Have mercy on me, a sinner. I think the brilliance and the power of this prayer, you guys, is how it combines the divinity, the power, the holiness of God with, with our lowly position. 
But it's not just that we should be downtrodden and beat to the floor. No. We're actually picked up when we fix our eyes on the cross and we take our eyes, our attention off of them. Whatever it is that we're comparing to, we're demonizing, we're making the enemy. It's a great tool. It, the cross will fix your relationships. The cross will, will fix your speech. The cross will fix your perspective. It has the power to do that. But we have to break the attention from all the other noise. So much noise. That's point number one. The cross will fix relationships. Number two, beware of the world's discipleship. Number two, beware of the world's discipleship, i.e. foolishness. Beware of the foolishness of the world. Verse 20 says this. Where is the wise man? Where is the expert in the Mosaic law? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made the wisdom of the world foolish? For since in the wisdom of God, the world by its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased to save those who believe by the foolishness of preaching. For Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks ask for wisdom. But we preach about a crucified Christ, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, quick qualifier. When you read that, if you're like me, it sounds like he's ascribing the word foolishness to preaching, foolishness to the cross, foolishness to God. It's actually not that way. That's not the actual object of the sentence. It's actually the way of the world. And you can see how he compares it to the Jews of the time or the Gentiles of the time or the world. You can get there. Paul uses the following words five, six times in this short paragraph. He uses foolishness five or six times. And then he uses this word stumbling block. What's foolishness? The Greek word morea, morea, absurdity, folly, dullness, literally lacking a sharp edge. It's going to be really relevant. We're going to come back to that in a second. I want you to be thinking about that. Think about the discipleship, which is a fancy word for shaping, formation in Jesus. It's foolishness, lacking an edge, dull. Absurd. And then he gets into this metaphor, this picture of a stumbling block, scandalon. Scandalon is the Greek word for stumbling block. Paul is, is figurative for, he's using that word figuratively. That is, he's ascribing to Jesus. He is actually ascribing to that Jesus, but as a, as, a, as a poetical figure. Not literal, but figurative. Jesus, the person whose person and career was so contrary to the expectations of the Jews that they rejected him. That's what he means by stumbling block. Here's the bottom line. <clears throat> How we get so messed up in our relationships. We're just trying to look smart. Trying to look smart. All the time, trying to look smart. You know what my friend and our friend Jerry Tallow says, one of our teaching team members? You know what he calls that? Just trying to look smart? Fig leaf. You guys know what a fig leaf is, right? Yeah. Adam and Eve in the garden, and they get the fig leaf sewn together to hide their shame, to hide their embarrassment, to hide their identity. And we're still doing that today in many different forms. What's your fig leaf? Is it looking smart? Is it status? Is it, is it performance? Is it competition? What's your fig leaf that you're still using today? And I will tell you, no surprise, are we going to rail against the internet? Oh, yeah, we're going to rail against the internet, baby. Here we go. The thing with the internet today and how we know truth has been such a challenge to this fig leaf culture. See, I don't think we would have half as many fights, half as many fights with our friends, families, our neighbors, our relatives, online especially, if it weren't for our stubborn, stubborn obstinacy to be obstinate, like a little stubborn, willful, willful child, to be right and know everything. That's what the whole deal is, is to be right and to know everything. Can't you see that's what Paul's talking about? He's talking about information. Verse 20, philosophers, scholars, brilliant debaters. He's talking about information. And you guys, we're at an all-time pinnacle high for this. And, and, and truth, it's not just the internet. The internet's been around doing its thing for 20-plus years. 
just been ticking away, doing his thing for 20 plus years. But now since COVID, this is what I saw. This is what I think happened since COVID. We all think that we're trained and licensed epidemiologists and lawyers overnight. Did, can I get an amen? Did anyone have a friend? Did anyone, and this is not knocking anyone on either side of the debate. It's just a fact. We had the, the openness and, and the uncorked piles of tens of thousands of pages of information on the internet. And then we had the audacity to say, we can consume most of it. Yeah. We can read most of it. And then we can be an authority on the subject of the spread of infectious disease and the legality of what's happening in our modern age. That's what we did, dude. That's what we're doing. I've seen it. I honestly shouldn't make light of it because I've seen it just rack people. At the end of a year of doing that, do you imagine that a person would be tuckered out, a little bit exhausted from trying to be God and file through the first 20 pages of Google results? The human soul wasn't meant to process that much information. Ben, why are you talking about information? What does that have to do? Remember, the relational component of this is that we're trying to look smart. And it's not just the technology and it's not just information. It's about the social pressure. You've heard it said many times in this post-technological age that we have decision fatigue. You guys ever had it? Dude, I watch my wife at the end of a long day. And one of the kids comes up and is just like, can I have a snack? And she's like, uh, 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 I don't know. <laughs> This is like, we can't answer. Our minds are about to explode from decision fatigue. She has a pretty special problem because she's like, I told her yesterday, she's the most in-demand woman in North America. She's the most in-demand woman. People just want to get at her. And I try and cut them off. No, talk to me. I'll answer your questions. No, I want mom. Can't even help her. It's not just decision fatigue. We're reading this book right now in our Bible study by Greg McCowan. Greg with a G, McGowan. It's called Essentialism tell you really quick, it's like the Marie Kondo, I think that's the name, of a closet organization, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? You, cl- you simplify your closet? Okay, even if you don't know the name, you have no idea what I'm talking about. There's a person out there who helps you organize your closet, okay? And they help you get rid of a bunch of stuff and simplify your closet, all right? This guy's writing the book on how to do that for your life. Can I get another amen? Anyone? Anyone ready to just go free? I'm not even selling books today, but you guys are ready to go pick it up, right? Yeah, you will be. You will be. And he talks about not just how we have decision fatigue as a result of technology, but, but the increase not just the increase in choices. Get this. This is the operative phrase and how it impacts our relationships and our social ties. It's the weight of social pressure of making those decisions right that has become so troublesome. If we post this or don't post this, the police are coming out. The social media police are coming out if we don't get this post right right now. And we're going to be in trouble. How does this connect with Paul and our relationships, our people today, people in Corinth and the people today? As Christians, we have a different wisdom system. Track with me now. We have a different wisdom system. You know what it's called? Christ and the cross 1.0. There won't be another edition of it, by the way. There won't ever be another update or another edition of Christ and the cross 1.0. That's our wisdom system, you guys. That's the only wisdom we'll ever need. Paul says, everything else is a dull blade. Everything else is absurdity when we have the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the whole thing that we need. We cannot give in to the influencers around us. Who are the debaters and the philosophy people and all the wise and smart people? They're influencers. And you guys who are not on social media in the room, that's okay. God bless you. But the influencers, the the, the people who have maybe 10,000 plus followers, I don't know how the algorithm works. And I'm not knocking people who have influence. It's awesome. But guys, guess what the punchline is? Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 1. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Dude, God doesn't care about your influence unless it's tied to the cross. God doesn't give a rip about your influence, whether it's online or in person. Maybe you run a staff. Maybe you have a team. Maybe you have a family. 
Maybe you have someone you're dating, and that's a party of one who you are influencing. God doesn't give a rip about that influence unless it's tied to the cross, you guys. That's the kind of influence that matters. That's an influence that changes the world. That's what we're talking about in our relationships. Finally, how are we really transformed in our relationships? By rooting our identity in Christ and his good news. If you guys are thinking about baptism, maybe, maybe this is taking on a new force for you right now. Because the band's going to come up in like two minutes. And we're going to worship. And we got a change of clothes that you can get soaked. And we got a towel that you can get dried up. And we got a bathroom where you can get changed again. And it's all taken care of. But don't go another day without having your identity rooted in the, in the, in the baptism of Jesus Christ. Think about that if that's for you today. Let's read this from verse 26. Think about the circumstances of your call, brothers and sisters. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were born in a privileged position. But God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. And God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what's regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something so that no one can boast in his presence. He is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus who came for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Rooting our identity in Christ, point number three. Our identity in Christ is the only way to wisdom and power. Rooting our identity in Christ. You know what, you know what as I read all those four or five verses, it's the anti-power play. <laughs> the way of Jesus is the anti-power play. I can't even articulate to you what a power play is exactly in the sport of hockey. I can't do it for you today. But we know what it's like in our relationships, don't we? When someone's powering up on us, when we're powering up on someone else. I used to pummel my little brother when we were growing up. Not physically, mentally and, and verbally. I, I wouldn't let him get an edge in. I wouldn't let him get a word in otherwise. Just debating him, pummeling him with my words. I, 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 my heart was so broken. Like 10 years later, I went and repented to him. I said, it made me sad to think about how I used to power up on my little brother with my words. That God had given me this, this, this gift of words and I was using it like that? Emptying the cross of its power? How could I do that? You guys powered up? Go ahead, guys. You can come up here. You guys powered up on someone you've been powered up on? The way of Jesus, the way of the cross is the anti-power play. His power comes from below, from underneath, from a lowly place, a humble place, a place that the world calls shameful. Can you not think about Jesus on the cross when you read there 27 through 29? He chose what is foolish to shame the wise. What the world thinks weak to shame the strong. What is low and despised in the world. What is regarded as nothing to set aside, regarded as something. In the week after Good Friday, I had preached that message and I was listening to another message on the cross. And this guy just talked about how, how, how much shame there would have been for Jesus to be naked. To be actually naked. Not like the movies show us with like a loincloth or something covering up, you know, his most private parts. Naked on the cross. Some, maybe most historians believe that was the case. Do you understand in that society? I mean, it's bad enough today, but in that society, how, how, how much shame? That is the, the epitome and the very bottom and the very essence of shame to be exposed before that community. Even to have your overcoat and have your undergarment. That's why Jesus, when he goes to court, when he's talking about conflict in court, and he tells people, if you go to court and they, and they sue you for your clothes, give them your overcoat as well so they will be shamed by your nakedness. It wasn't just roll over and just be a victim. No, this is what he's talking about. When Jesus talks about if they sue you or if the Roman guard says you got to take your pack for one mile, you take it for two. When someone slaps you on the cheek, this is relational. This is for relational, isn't it? When someone slaps you on the cheek, if someone slaps you on the cheek, it assumes it's someone outside yourself, right? That's relational. He says turn the other cheek. It means right your face back in the proper orientation and shame them. 
by their verbal or physical or emotional abuse of you. Jesus, the power comes from an anti-power play from underneath, from below. That's the way of Jesus, you guys. That's the power of the cross is what I'm trying to say when I talk about the particulars of Jesus again and what it must have been like that day on the cross. That's what it is. He used, when Paul says that, he used the things that would have been shame and weak and foolish. Jesus uses for power in our relationships. But you've got to have your identity rooted in it. Because that's the first line Paul says. He says, remember your call. And if you're going to boast in anything, this word boasting, I, I love the original word boasting. It means like living with your head up high from, your, from a vantage point, kind of big-headed and high-headed. When he ends by saying, if you're going to boast, boast in anything. Are we doing that? Are we still boasting in our own self-interest? That's what Paul is warning against and what he's cautioning. He says, if you're going to boast, don't boast in yourself. All the stuff you've done and how much you have and how far you've gone. But you know what's so cool about that word boasting? If you have to be high-minded, if you have to be high-headed, if you have to have this high vantage point, let it be from the cross. That's what he says in that phrase, and that's so cool. Because if you just read, if you have to boast in anything, you'd say, oh, boasting's bad. Boasting's one of the sins, I think, I'm pretty sure, somewhere. But it works both ways. Yeah, it is negative if it's about self. But if it's the cross, then yeah, you can't earn that vantage point, that right seating with God. And that's what baptism is all about, you guys. So these guys are just going to, they're going to play. And just take a second right now. Take the next two minutes. That's what I want you to do. Just take the next two minutes and close your eyes and just rest and be still. We can have a, a part of service that's just silent. So good. Search your hearts right now. And I'll come up after two minutes. And if someone wants to get baptized, you just come up anytime during the next two minutes or afterwards during the song. And we'll get you fixed up and get you ready. My, my, my brother and friend Marshall is here to help me. And we'll get you set up. If you, want to, if you know you want to get baptized, you can come forward right now and sit over here in the front and we'll get you ready. If that's you right now and you want to get baptized, you can just come forward right now. But take these next two minutes and just search your heart. Pray through that Psalm 139. Search me and know my anxious thoughts, O Lord. Know me. Correct me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's one great option. Sit here in the next two minutes and just pray the Jesus prayer. Lord, Son of God, have mercy on me sinner. Just sense and search your heart and let God sense and search your heart for whatever it is he wants you to do. Take two minutes here just in the silence. We hope that this message has challenged and encouraged you. If you need prayer, would like to join a small group community, or are interested in partnering with our work throughout Costa Mesa and Orange County, please go to watermarkoc.com. We would love to start a conversation.